Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our second in our series that uh, if, if you've got notes where you, uh, you see I've been titled it, Just a Coincidence, question mark, and it's a really a primer on the providence of God. A primer, of course, is uh, just some sort of elementary teaching. And as we, as we said last week, uh, when we talk about providence, it comes from the word pro-video, pro meaning uh, for or before, and video mean uh, to see. So it's the idea of seeing before, but it's not just simply seeing before. It also uh, has to do with preparation uh, and supplying all the needs that are going to be necessary for the things that are coming. In fact, I put that, uh, it's interesting that Noah Webster, when he defined this, uh, put this in the dictionary, and if you'll notice, uh, providence, he says, is active foresight, not just simple foresight, but active foresight, or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use. The care or benevolent guidance of God or nature is the secondary meaning. And certainly, when we think of coincidences, we think of uh, accidental occurrences. Sometimes we even use the terminology chance. But remember last week we said that the word chance a chance never causes anything. Chance is a mathematical probability. If you flip a coin, the chances are that it's going to come up heads is what? 50-50. That's right, because there are two, two possibilities. So, but if you can take that same coin and put it on this chair and put a rope around it so that nobody can get around the chair and you hope there's not going to be any sort of earthquakes and the coin is not going to fall off the chair. There, chance doesn't cause anything. It's simply a mathematical probability. So a lot of times we refer to coincidences, but in the Christian life, what we're looking at is really the providence of God, and that is that God sees beforehand what's going to happen, and in doing so, provides everything that we're ever going to need, including his, uh, his very kind guidance for us as well. And just to kind of set the background for the study, we all remember the story of, uh, of Joseph. What, what we're going to be looking at today has to do with Moses. Notice the, uh, the title for our study today is kind of an unusual title, but it's an unwitting subsidy for a future political foe. I can, uh, I can hear your hearing aid start to whine there. Uh, unwitting subsidy for a future political foe. And what we're, who we're going to be looking at is Moses, and we're going to see how God used Pharaoh, who was totally against everything that the Israelites stood for, yet God is going to provide everything that Moses needs uh, in terms of education, food, upbringing, everything. And ultimately, years later, uh, Moses will be the instrument of God's deliverance of the, uh, of the people of Israel. But just to, uh, just to kind of set the stage for that so we can pick up the story with some continuity, um, really the story begins with Joseph. Remember, Joseph has, was, the, uh, was the favorite son of his father. 
and they were living down here, uh, they sort of uh, between Hebron and Beersheba, which was even further south. And remember, uh, Joseph was, uh, was Jacob's favorite, favorite son, and uh, had made him the coat, we say, of many colors. It was a, it was a coat that, uh, that represented management. It was a coat uh, that uh, demonstrated the fact that although Joseph was actually the 11th, uh, uh, the 11th son, uh, Dad had already decided that he was the one through whom uh, the blessing, the double blessing was going to come, the double portion. But remember when Joseph was 17 years old and he was giving his brothers a hard time, his brothers hated him because Dad loved him more than anybody else. Uh, and because of Joseph's rotten attitude where he was always throwing that up in their face. Remember there came a time one day, apparently during the summertime, because it says that the brothers had taken the flocks north, they had gone all the way up to Dothan. That indicates that the time of year was probably the summer because the desert is right down here beginning at Beersheba, and as the summer goes by, of course the, uh, the pasture land gets... Uh, uh, minimized more and more and more. There's just a uh, very uh, sparse uh, uh, pasture. And so they'd gone up to Dothan, which is sort of in the, uh, in the area up here where the, where the mountains are, and there would be lots of water that would be coming down from melting snow uh, up further. And so it was a great place to pasture. Well, Dad had sent Joseph up here to talk to the brothers, to check on them, see how they were doing. And he discovered them at uh, Dothan, and remember, that's where the brothers saw him coming, and they said, ah, look at that, there's Joseph, here comes that dreamer, uh, let's take care of him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And of course, their initial idea was to kill Joseph, but Judah, who was, I believe, the, uh, the third or the fourth son, came up with the idea of, uh, of selling Joseph into slavery. Remember, there was a trade route uh, that came from <clears throat> the northeast over here. It actually passed through Dothan, and then it followed the shoreline here uh, where Canaan is all the way down to the land of Egypt. Remember that uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, took him down to the land of Egypt, and in the good providence of God. Now, here's this, here's this kid who's 17 years old who we discover... Uh, later, as we read the scriptures, was just fearful for his life. He just he didn't understand what was going on, and he got down to Egypt. And remember, he ran into uh, a number of problems down there. The first thing that happened was that he was he was sold into slavery to a guy named Potiphar. Do you remember what Potiphar did? He was the uh, he was essentially the uh, chief trustee for Pharaoh. He was Pharaoh's right-hand man. And, uh, <clears throat> and Joseph became the chief trustee at Potiphar's house. And you'll recall that it wasn't long before there was an incident that, uh, that eventually put Joseph in prison. What was that incident? Anybody remember? That's right. Mrs. Potiphar put some moves on, uh, on Joseph because he's a handsome guy. And, uh, you know, I guess Mr. Potiphar was away from the house a whole lot. But uh, anyway, uh, Joseph uh, uh, was, she attempted to seduce Joseph, and he said, how can I do this, what you're talking about, and uh, uh, this, this, would be, uh, this would be wrong as far as my relationship with God is concerned. 
And actually, he finally had to just flee the premises. And of course, when he fled, he left behind him his toga. And when Potiphar got home that evening, what did Mrs. Potiphar do? What was the accusation? That's right, that Joseph actually had even attempted to rape her, which of course was untrue. <clears throat> and so what happens is that uh, uh, Joseph's been the chief trustee at Potiphar's house, and the next place we see him is that he winds up in prison. But before long in prison, he becomes the chief trustee. It's interesting that at Potiphar's house, he was learning all sorts of household responsibilities. He had no responsibilities when he'd been living with Dad. And so God is using this, uh, this time at Potiphar's house for him to learn household responsibilities. Well, while he's in prison, he learns institutional responsibilities, learns how to, how to run an organization, how to order food, how to do all the things that, uh, that need to be done. And remember, while he was in prison, uh, Pharaoh got real ticked off with his, uh, with his chief baker and his wine taster. Both of them wound up in jail. They both had dreams. Joseph interpreted their dreams. They came true exactly as Joseph had said. And Joseph told the wine taster as he was headed back to put the cup in Pharaoh's hand again be, to be restored to his position. He said, look, when you get back to Pharaoh, he said, tell Pharaoh about me because I'm here, I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm here in prison wrongly. And uh, this was 11 years into his imprisonment. Remember, Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Uh, when he gets out, he is, uh, he is 30 years old. So you've got 13 years, and uh, the scriptures say at the end of two full years, uh, after, after, the, uh, uh, after the wine taster had been restored to Pharaoh's position, to his position with Pharaoh. Remember that uh, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh started having dreams, and he had a couple of really wacky dreams about fat cows and skinny cows and big stalks of corn and shriveled up corn, and nobody could make head nor tails out of what it meant. And one day the old wine taster just kind of did that, and he said, you know, there's a guy in prison who can tell you exactly what those dreams are. They sent for Joseph. That was 13 years after he went into prison. Uh, Thirteen years he was in during all that time. And what happens as a result of that is he's, uh, he is promoted. He becomes, uh, uh, M-O-T-E-D, promoted. He becomes essentially what is uh, chief operations officer over all of Egypt. And now his duties, he's learned to manage a household. He's learned to manage uh, a business, an institution, and now he is prepared to take care of a nation. Now, it's fascinating when you read the story that you discover that at this point, Joseph still has no clue, no real clue as to why he is in Egypt. He's been faithful to God. He's done all the right things. You know, he's been a sassy teenager, and that got him in the doghouse with his brothers. But that's no real reason for him to be in this awful situation. And yet, when all of this comes to pass, it's apparent when you read those first uh, those chapters in Genesis that there's a realization on Joseph's part that he was there to, uh, to help save this nation of Egypt because there was this tremendous drought that was coming. There were going to be seven good years followed by seven very lean years. Joseph's put in charge, and the land is spared. 
what Joseph didn't know and what he would not know for another nine years. Remember, there were seven good years that, uh, that came, so Joseph's 37 years old by the time those are over. And then it's in the second year of drought when Joseph is 39 years old. Now, he went down there when he was 17. Uh, what, 22 years later, when it finally dawns on Joseph his real purpose in being down there. Because remember what happened was as the drought began to take its uh, toll on Egypt, the effects of the drought began to move uh, north and eastward, and it finally made its way up to the land of Canaan, uh, and particularly to the city of Hebron, where uh, uh, Jacob and his family were living. And Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt because he had heard that they could buy grain. That's when Joseph realized that his purpose was even greater than saving Egypt, that God had sent him down here 22 years earlier in order to be the one who would be the instrument for the deliverance of his own family. And we know the story that before it's all over, the entire family who's living at Hebron moves down to, uh, moves down to Egypt, takes up uh, a residence in Goshen. Remember, Goshen is in this area right here close to the... Uh, the, in the area of the Nile Delta, it was the most fertile area of Egypt. It was the place where they could raise their livestock. Uh, some of the members of Jacob's family had already begun to intermarry with some of the people in the Canaanite relationship. By moving down here, the Egyptians abhorred shepherds, and that's what the, uh, that's what the, uh, the Hebrews did. And so as a result of that, there was more of a separation between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, and they grew from a family of around 72 or so, which is when they came uh, down here, to a family of uh, some, something like 3 million, and that happened in a period of about 400 years. So again, we see, we see the providence of God at work, that God saw beforehand what was going to happen, but not just saw what was going to happen, but made preparations for every step of the way. Now, there were a lot of terrible feelings that people had, a lot of misunderstandings that people had, but in the final analysis, God was working out his plan. Remember, after, uh, after Jacob died, the brothers uh, were just sure that Joseph would take retribution on them. And they concocted a story and said, you know, wait a minute now, before Dad died, he said that uh, we ought to do, you, you ought to be real nice to us. And Joseph just wept before them. And he said, uh, <clears throat> remember that famous uh, passage from Genesis chapter uh, 50, uh, verse 20, where he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God did what? God meant it for good, that's right. Now that brings us to uh, the point where we are today. Remember that the children of Israel have uh, they've moved down here under, under... In fact, remember Pharaoh had sent his own carriages and carts and things up here to Hebron to help uh, move these people down here. And so there was a good relationship uh, between Jacob's family and the Egyptians early on. But certainly that did not last. In fact, if you look in the left-hand column of your notes, uh, in that passage from Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, that I've labeled another promise to Abraham. Remember, 
God had promised Abraham that he would have offspring like the sand of the seashore. And that really started coming into fulfillment with, uh, with Jacob and his, his family, uh, that is, to any extent. But in Genesis 15, verse 13, it says, The Lord said to him, to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. What country is that? Egypt, that's right. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So they were treated well to start with until, the, until that pharaoh passed off the scene and then things really started changing. Remember, there was such a blessing on these people that everything, it's almost like everything they put their hands to did well. And then God goes on to say to Abraham, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And if you'll recall, later on when Moses will, will lead the exodus and all these people will head back toward the land. Now we know they're not going to get there right away. There's going to be a lot of wandering for some 38 to 40 years there in the wilderness before they ever get back to the land. We, uh, we do realize that says when they, they will come out with great possessions. Remember one of the things that the Egyptians did where they were so glad to see these Hebrews go, especially after the death of the firstborn, uh, everybody in Egypt, then uh, uh, they were just giving away their silver and gold, said, yes, go on. And, and essentially that was God's way of paying all of these folks for what they'd been through. I guess we'd call that reparations these days when there's a lot of talk about reparations. So that brings us to our story today. That's a long background, I know, but it really sets the stage for what I want us to, to look at, because it's, and it's a familiar story. Exodus 1 gives us kind of an overview of what's going on, and then in Exodus 2, we look at some specifics. It's very much like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we read about the God created every, all the things that God created, and we get an overview of it. Then in Genesis chapter 2, what, uh, what Moses does there is he goes back to the creation and he focuses on the sixth day and he really gives us a lot of specifics about the creation of man. Well, that's kind of what happens here. In Exodus 1, we get an overview of what was going on in the nation of Israel at this point. And then in Exodus chapter 2, we narrow that focus down to one particular family Within, uh, within the Hebrew nation during that time. So let's, uh, let's read a little bit. Verse 6. It says of uh, Exodus 1, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Again, now they're, they're moving from some 70 or 72 people up into the millions. And of course, uh, when you've got that many foreigners living in your land and they're multiplying that way and they're living in the very best part of the land, what is going to be the reaction of some of the, uh, some of the inhabitants of the land toward these foreigners who are living there? How are they going to feel about that? Yeah, <clears throat> resentful, they're going to feel very threatened, and I think that's what the uh, text brings out. Now, in the next few verses, verses 8 through 10, we see the motivation for what uh, is about to happen. It says, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Isn't it amazing how we, 
we forget the, the good times and how helpful some people have been. A uh, little time passes by, things start getting tough, and we just those memories just fade from view, and all we can see is just the stuff that's going on right now. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly. What is shrewdly? Crooked? Yeah, sort of a cunning kind of thing. Yeah, right. Uh, let's uh, deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, notice the, the, there's the hypothetical there. There's the possible threat. If war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So there's the motivation for what we're about to see happen. These folks may be trying to take over. And especially if there's a war, you know, if we had somebody come down here and try to invade us, well, these folks could join up with them, and man, we'd be in a mess. So here's what they did. Notice they did a couple of things. First, they tried enslavement, and then they're going to try a form of infanticide, verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Now, that's awful. That's an awful thing to do, but this is forced labor. And what are they learning during this forced labor? Well, labor. Well, they're learning some survival skills. How is that going to be helpful, do you think, to learn survival skills? When that's right. When it comes time to, uh, for the exodus, they're going to know how to live during difficult times. Uh, oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. It's kind of like swatting flies. Every time you get one, you know, two more come to, uh, to say how to do. So the Egyptians came to dread this sort of an intense fear that we see. Uh, that is, they came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. Now, what is ruthless? Yeah, uncaring, unmerciful. Uh, Ruth is mercy. So uh, un, uh, uh, ruthless would be uh, without mercy. It worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So they, you know, for years they had kind of been the star attraction down here. Things were going well. And all of a sudden, I mean, everything has just turned. And some of these folks, you got to think, are saying, where is God in all this? Whoa, 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 what's going on? What about those promises that God made? Notice the second ploy, beginning at verse 15, the second method that they used. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. Shifra means fair. Pua means splendid. A couple of ladies named fair and splendid. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. Why, why would you do that? Ah, that's where the soldiers come from. That's right, the boys are the soldiers. But, he says, if it's a girl, let her live. Why? Well, the servants, they also will reproduce more. I mean, these folks have gone into the slave business now, these Egyptians have, and so this is a way to, uh, to have more slaves. The midwives, however, notice they commit, the midwives commit an act of civil disobedience. Remember, we talked about this when we studied Romans. 
and that is we are to obey the laws of the land unless the laws of the land conflict with God's word. And God's word tells us that we are not to kill, that we are not to murder, and this would have been an act of murder. And so what these midwives are doing, rather than saying, well, you know, I, I know it, it looks kind of bad, but, you know, God said obey the folks where we are. Oh, no, 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 no. Not when it, when it conflicts with, the, uh, with, with what God says. The midwives, however, verse 17, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, what does that mean? They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives get there. Yeah, it may have been an excuse. But the idea, and think about it, if these folks have been under under all kinds of strenuous labor and they're learning all these survival skills, uh, you know, it's not beyond comprehension that these, uh, these ladies could have these babies and didn't require a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of help. They're vigorous. They give, they're not like these Egyptian women. These Egyptian women, you know, Carol used to, when I'd come in uh, years ago when the children were small, and, you know, there'd be toys and stuff scattered all over creation. There'd be one little clear path where I could get from the door to my chair and the paper would be sitting there for me. She was always kind to do that. But I'd, uh, I'd say, what you been doing all day? She said, oh, I've just been laying around and the children have been dropping grapes in my mouth. You know, sort of a facetious kind of thing. And that, you get that sort of idea that maybe that's the way Egypt, a lot of Egyptian women were living. At least that's the contrast that, seems, that Moses seems to be presenting as he writes this. It says, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then you go into phase two of this infanticide thing. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Notice the first order was to the midwives, and that is get rid of the little boys, save the little girls. Was that working? Nope, that was not working. Plan B for Pharaoh. And this time he gives the order to all his people. That would include not only the midwives and not only the Hebrews, but also the Egyptians as well. He's getting everybody involved, and that would also include his own royal family. He gave this order to all his people, every boy that's born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Uh, this is not only the same attitude, but there's, uh, this, this would give it some uh, religious underpinnings because remember at that time they believed that, uh, that, the God, that there were gods in all kinds of things. Remember the Egyptians had a multiplicity of gods. And one of them was a god of the Nile. And so this would placate the god of the Nile by throwing all these little sacrifices out there. Because what was really happening was the crocodiles were getting them. Alright, so now that's what's going on. This new, this new pharaoh has come up who do, really doesn't know anything about all the good that Joseph had done, all he knows, and, re and remember, we're looking at uh, old 300 years 
plus at this point. All he knows is that these Hebrews are multiplying so rapidly that they pose a real threat, and he's trying to do something about what he views as a potential threat. Now, Exodus 2 gives us a few specifics about a family. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. All right, so you got two people here, a Levite guy and a Levite girl, and they got married. Now, who are these people? Well, if we read ahead in the Bible to the book of Numbers, and all you have to do is move your gaze up just about an inch, you'll notice from the passage in Numbers chapter 26, verses 58 and 59, and this is one of the advantages of at least scanning through the genealogies. We'll sometimes learn some things this way. Notice what it says in that passage. It says, Kohath was the forefather of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, a descendant of Levi who was born to the Levites in Egypt. To Amram, Amram and Jochebed, the, the husband and the wife, to Amram she bore Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. All right, so... Here's a, so we got a little family tree right here. We've got, uh, we've got Amram is uh, married to Jochebed. And they have three children. Now the first of those children is a girl. Her name is Miriam. Now the reason that we know that the first one is a girl, because as we read through the story, we're going to discover that Miriam is going to play a part. And if Miriam had been just uh, very, very small, she wouldn't have been able to do what she did. After Miriam came Aaron, and the reason we know that Aaron was the second child is because later on it tells us that he is uh, three years older than the third child whose name later came to be Moses. So... Here's Amram and Jochebed. They've, uh, they've given birth to three sons. Now, you'll notice that when, the, uh, the, when Moses writes it in Numbers, who's mentioned last? Miriam, even though she was the firstborn. That's because it was a patriarchal society and men tended to take uh, uh, a higher place. That's, that's the reason I'm sure that it's, uh, that it's written that way. All right, back, back to Exodus 2 as we look at this uh, specifics of this, uh, of this situation. All right, a man of the house of Levi, and we've discovered that that's whom? That's Amram, married a Levite woman, Jochebed, and she became pregnant. Now, we, all, we also know that she's already had, by this point, two children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she's, now notice that this child does not have a name yet. Now we know that the name is ultimately going to be Moses. Now think about this. Pause for just a minute. Now we know what, it, what Moses ultimately is going to do. And what's that? He's going to, that's right, he's going to lead the exodus. Now, with him just being born, how old is Moses? Do you remember how old Moses was when he led the exodus? When Moses led the Exodus, he was 80 years old. Now, here's God working providentially in these people's lives. He's promised Abraham 
uh, almost 400 years ago that these people would be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars in the sky, and they were going to inhabit and own, uh, populate this entire land of Canaan. But where are these people right now? They're down here in Egypt. Doesn't look like it's working. Well, it's working. And 80 years before the time, it's time for the Exodus, what does God do? He causes this man named Amram and this woman named Jochebed to have a child. And this child ultimately will be the one called Moses. Isn't it amazing that when God works, that he often starts with very small things. Remember, uh, it's like the birth of Jesus. He'd been prophesied throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, the Messiah would come. Uh, Isaiah prophesied that. Many of the other prophets did. Malachi finally talks about the forerunner. All of a sudden, John the baptizer comes on the scene, and he begins to talk about the one who is to come. You'd think everybody in the world would be looking around their shoulders saying, if this is the forerunner, the Messiah has got to be around here somewhere. Where is he? But people weren't doing that. But when God works, he often starts in a very small way, just with the birth of the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, the reason for Jesus' birth was so that he could die a substitutionary, sacrificial death for all of the sins of all of his people. You, you have to see a similar situation here. Uh, verse 2 again, middle, middle ways through that, says, When she, that is Jochebed, saw that he was a fine child. What is it, what's a fine child? Healthy. Maybe healthy, uh, maybe good looking. That there was something about this kid that was different. She didn't know what it was. It's apparent. It says she hid him for three months. Well, now what was she supposed to do with him? She's supposed to throw him to the crocs out there. She, he's supposed to go in the Nile. But it says she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide, when she could hide him no longer, now what would, what would happen after three months that it would be difficult for her to hide this baby? Yeah, they, they might kill him. Uh, certainly more vocal. You know, if you think of the development of a child, you're, you know how they're starting to move around. They're making more noise. And besides that, if you live in a community where a lot of the community, most of the community's male children have become crocodile food, and you have got a little boy yourself, and you've got several other people around whose little boys have been sacrificed to the Nile, how might they feel about you having a little boy and they can't have a little boy? That's right, so there may be some resentment. Now, the, the Scriptures don't say that. We're just thinking in terms of human nature right now. But notice what she does. When she could hide him no longer, for whatever reasons, and clearly there were some developmental reasons there, it says she got a papyrus basket from him. Now, what is papyrus? Yeah, it's a, it's a reedy-type uh, material that grows down in water. And in fact, uh, we know that its primary purpose is not basket weaving. What is it? Making something for writing. Remember, they wrote on papyrus. Okay, she got a she got a papyrus basket for him. So 
I don't know whether she goes to the market or whether she's got a neighbor or what, but anyway, she secures this basket that's obviously these reeds, and I'm sure they've been woven and probably uh, put together uh, the way you and I would do something like that. And she coated it with tar and pitch. Now, what would the tar and pitch do? Ah, that would waterproof it. That's right. Okay. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now, this is an interesting point of the story. Most of us, I think, have seen the Cecil B. DeMille production of the Ten Commandments. And you remember there's a point <clears throat> in that production where Jochebed puts her baby, the, the little papyrus basket is all tarred and pitched, all waterproof, and she puts a little a blankie in there and puts the little baby inside there and closes the top down. And then remember what she does, she takes that baby and she just kind of shoves the baby out in the river. That is, if you, if you watch the movie. And the, and, the, and the little, you know, basket kind of bobs up and down out there in the water. And you're thinking, oh man, the crocodile's going to get it just any minute. But it finds itself nestled among some reeds. That is not what happened. What did she do? She put it among the reeds. Now, there was a particular place among the reeds that she put it, and she had a particular reason for doing it, which becomes evident later on. It's interesting, too, and to, to I think to observe this, that the only safe place for this baby was the place of danger, and ultimately the place of death. It's, again, it's a real picture of our Lord Jesus. And it's a picture that the only safe place for us is in Christ, as it were, in that basket, safely with him. She put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, if this kid's three months old, his sister's got to be obviously older than that. We know that from later that uh, Aaron is three years older than Moses, would you take a three-year-old and stand him down by the river and say, kind of keep your eye on him? Certainly not. That's how we know that Moses was the old, I'm sorry, Miriam was the oldest of the, uh, of the three kids. We're not sure exactly about her age, but it says his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds. You think, you think this has any... Do um, you think the fact that these attendants were there and Pharaoh's daughter had a specific place she liked to bathe, do you think that played any part in where Jochebed put that basket? You bet. You bet it. She put it exactly where she knew it would be found. She loved that boy. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, what's her responsibility right now? Throw this baby in the Nile. But notice what she does. <clears throat> now, again, we see the providence of God. Now, what's Miriam doing? She's standing over there to one side. Now, a three-year-old wouldn't be able to do what Miriam's about to do. It says, Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? In other words, look, you need a wet nurse. So would you like for me to get a wet nurse? Now, who do you think Miriam had in mind? That's right. You're going to go get her mom. going to go get the baby's mom, Jochebed. Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the mother's or the baby's mother. You just when you think about this, when you think about Jonah's disobedience and how when God told him to go to Nineveh, he went in the opposite direction and he, he paid the fare himself to get on that ship. And of course, did he ever make it to Tarshish where he was headed? No. He had one of those undersea adventures with Jacques Cousteau and a, and a great big fish and he wound back up in Nineveh. And the Bible never tells us that he ever got his money back because he didn't make it to Tarshish. Contrast that with what Jochebed is doing here. She is seeking to be obedient to the Lord. She is not going to sacrifice her baby, but she takes her baby to the place of danger, to the place of death. She places that baby so that that child will be found. And God in His providence, the God who 80 years later is going to take that baby and that baby is going to grow up to be the man who will be the instrument of deliverance of the Israelites, what God does is he works in the heart in some way, appeals to the tenderness of Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And Jochebed winds up getting paid to nurse her own baby. Instead of losing her baby, she gets to keep her baby, and she even gets paid to nurse the baby. Notice what it says. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. You think she'd have done this without pay? She's going to be paid for what she is yearning to do. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, probably somewhere between three and five years old, that's usually when children were weaned, uh, <clears throat> when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he, this child, became her, Pharaoh's daughter's son. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses. The Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew meaning of the word Moses means drawn out. Saying, here's why she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Notice Stephen's testimony from Acts chapter 7. This is right before... Uh, Stephen was, uh, became the first uh, martyr of, that, uh, of the church. And in Acts 7, he's, he's rehearsing the history of Israel. And he gets to the point about Moses. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, he says, At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. <clears throat> when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. What kind of, uh, essentially, Moses became the adopted grandson, as it were, of Pharaoh. Now, what kind of education is Pharaoh's daughter's son going to get? The best there is. What kind of health care is he going to get? The best that there, he's going to get the best of everything, the best of education, the best of everything. Do you see the reason for the title? An unwitting subsidy for a future political foe. What was God doing? 
he was using this Pharaoh who hated the Israelites, and this Pharaoh actually had living within his household the person who 80 years later would be the one who would lead all of these children, the children of Israel, out of Egypt and would lead them in the desert and ultimately would bring them up to the point where Joshua would bring them in to the promised land. That is the providence of God. Clearly, as parents and grandparents, we can have a profound impact on our children. Uh, the Bible says, train up a child according to his way, even when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Uh, it's amazing when you read the story of Moses, he really developed a love for his people. And you and I, as parents and grandparents, need faith in God. We need courage. We need a workable plan. Uh, notice, I love that little verse from Psalm 127, verse 4. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one, one's youth. Notice, children are like arrows. They're not like guided missiles. With guided missiles, you can change the course of what they're doing after they're launched. But with arrows, the only chance you get is you polish the shaft and you put the best kind of goose feathers on it, you balance that arrow just right, you put the right kind of tip on it, and the way you release that arrow and the way you adjust for the windage and the elevation has a whole lot to say about where that arrow is going to wind up. And that's the kind of responsibility that we have as parents and as grandparents. And yet, even in the providence of God, once they're launched, what God can do is as they get off, try to get off track, is God can just go, just sort of blow a little breath of wind and put that arrow right back on target. Train up a child in the way he should go when he's old. He will not depart from it. God in his providence is always, always, always faithful to his children. His promises are sure and steadfast. And his providence is always timely. It looks like things are about to crash through the bottom. But the truth is, was God was at work, working his plan, and brought it to fruition at exactly the right time. God help us to trust in him as he works his plan in our lives. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.